Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My guest today is Chris Wallace, Senior Portfolio Manager, CEO, and CIO. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. So, Chris, uh, gold markets over the past week, it's, it's been a tough ride, right? Um, I'm just clicking through a couple of the things that, that come to mind. You know, the U.S. market is, is coming off all-time highs, and in the past week, we're, we're down uh, north of 12%. Um, volatility spiked above 30 uh, we've seen um, global fears around coronavirus. You know, we've seen uh, massive government interjections. We've uh, things along the lines of, of Japan closing all schools through March. Switzerland's banned all gatherings north of a thousand people, um, and this seems like just the very beginning. But you know, as as you've looked out at the global landscape, you know, is there is there anything else that's driving this steep market correction? Um, any other factors that are out there beyond coronavirus? Yeah, sure. Uh, there's no doubt about that, Dan. When you look at it, the coronavirus was I won't call it the straw that broke the camel's back, more like the bale of straw that finally broke the camel's back. But we were already in a very tenuous situation or, or kind of set up for the market. Uh, for one, the, the rally we saw in the fourth quarter was built out of liquidity and trying to kind of front run the Fed. Uh, there was a lot of incremental leverage, a lot of net long positions coming into the first quarter of 2020 with the hope that the slight improvement we've started seeing in economic data internationally would then translate into the U.S. and the back half of 2020 would be a, kind of a, a robust um, economic recovery from the slowdown we've experienced over the last 12 months. So that's what the market was positioned for and what actually started coming out even in early January and early February before news of the, of the virus was, you know, less strong economic data, meaning the rate of change in economic improvement was already leveling off. When you looked into kind of leading employment data, it was weakening. Uh, and again, just lower growth, less hours work, things such as that, which is just classic later cycle elements. So the market was already narrowing. We were grossly uh, had excessive longs on, and it's in levered hands. And then when news of the virus hit, while the market was thinking about and trying to discount some less robust activity, it clearly put that uh, to bed. And we just saw a very negative self-reinforcing cycle as you had vol spike. And with that, levered play players and algos start selling, and there's nobody there to sell securities to, so you gap down very aggressively. Right, and it happens quick. And you know, so you know, essentially, what you're, what I'm hearing from you is, you know, we we have this, you know, this gross net long position, an overly gross net long position, um, along with uh, a substantial leverage, and and this is really the tender. And then you throw coronavirus on as a spark, and and, and watch out. Yep, so. that's exactly right. Uh, and and then you know, you think about the global impact, right? And I, I'm looking out at you know production, supply chain. You know, we I had, I had read recently that you know the the amount of production via China is the equivalent of seven Vietnams. And, and so there's really no way um, or nowhere rather to, to re replicate the type of production that comes out of China. Can you talk a bit about the impacts that we're going to see on, on consumption, on margin, on productivity and supply chains? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. You know, you can't just snap your fingers and, and move a supply chain or move manufacturing. And even beyond just the size of the uh, the country and the population and the ability to move a manufacturing base. There's also ports. Ports really limit where some goods can be shipped in and out of. And so that's another limiting factor. And we, we were already well underway just because of tariffs, just because when you look at the 
the fall of global trade as a percent of GDP, corporations were already trying to get closer from production to end markets. So that was well underway. This is just another reason to kind of accelerate that. So, you know, maybe if you were a company and you were hesitant, uh, I'm sure the boards are putting some incremental pressure to diversify supply chains. When we do that, ultimately it's going to be less efficient. So margins are going to be lower. Um, The way we're thinking about this from an economic standpoint is we're trying to treat it like a typical recession. And what I mean by that is, where we had excess of inventories and now we've shut production, we're going to draw those down very quickly. So we're going to see a sharp sell-off in uh, economic activity or fall-off in economic activity. And we certainly saw that out of the PMI data out of China over the weekend. But as activity resumes, you're going to have a V-shaped recovery back. Um, And not just from the drawdown in inventories, but you know, there's a, there's a rush on stores right now. People are starting to hoard goods. So we're gonna, there, there's going to be a bigger drawdown than kind of in demand. So I suspect we get a pretty sharp recovery on the other side of this as far as getting back to the base level of activity. And then from there, it'll be just like what you've experienced for the last several years, slow, modest growth. Um, the one thing I want to watch to make sure it doesn't turn into a larger issue is credit spreads. Now, we'd already started to see credit start to become incrementally less positive. Uh, Again, just like there were a lot of excessive longs in the equity markets, there's a lot of excessive longs, both in emerging market of credit as well as domestic high yield. And those spreads blew out last week, and they should have. Uh, That makes sense. We'll see if if that becomes a bigger issue as we move forward. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Two things that jump out at me. One, I I hadn't even considered the port limitations. I mean, I think that's... You know, really uh, uh, an interesting you know, sort of way to, to, to frame the uh, one more difficulty that exists here. Um, and then the second piece is, is around this V-shaped recovery you mentioned. Um, and, that's in, and just to be clear, you know, that's a V-shaped recovery, get back to base levels, right? That's Correct. Not a, that's not a, um, okay, we've had a, a, a reset here or, or a drawdown, and we're going to see a V-shaped recovery, and we're going to be off and running. Correct. That's correct. So, you know, if, if, if I think about, you know, who's probably played the biggest role in, in especially the, the U.S. economy, um, over the last you know decade plus 15 years, uh, it really has the, been the Fed, right? And you know what at this point is is Fed's role, and and what do you expect for them to do? Uh, and is there anything they can do to help save us here? Yeah, um, you know they can't save us because the issues we're dealing with are structural more than anything else. And you know this slowdown going all the way back a couple of years has been textbook. Um, you know later in the cycle. The Fed starts to raise rates. It slows economic activity. Ultimately, the curve inverts. Market participants tell us not to worry about that. It's technical in nature. It's really not the end of the cycle. It it re-steepens, then it re-inverts. This is classic end-of-cycle economic slowdown. It's being exacerbated, obviously, by the coronavirus But the Fed's response is going to be, first and foremost, they're going to cut short rates, and they're probably going to cut them pretty aggressively. Um, If you look at what the yield curve's done just in the last week, it has steepened aggressively, kind of from twos to tens, which is the market saying, all right, guys, you're way behind the curve. Monetary policy is entirely too tight, and so you need to, to be aggressive with cuts. 
Um, you know, a 10-year setting all-time lows, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but there's also no question that inflation expectations are coming down, growth expectations are coming down. More importantly, U.S. deficit expectations are rising and U.S. debt issuance expectations will be rising along with that. And what we're seeing really today uh, being uh, on a Monday is a dramatic move with the dollar lower and the euro higher. And that's the market saying, look, they're getting ready to cut rates, and there's not much that Europe can do from a rate standpoint, so those differentials start to compress. So it wouldn't surprise me to see 7,500 basis point rate cut um, out of the Fed. And then, you know, they'll go back to QE, or I shouldn't say that. They'll so, continue the QE that they began in September. Right. So before, before you step into that thought, you know, if they end up going, you know, 75 base points, 100 basis point cut, um, there's there's not much there's not much le- left room to go after, no. after we hit there. No, no, no. Right. No, we've played we've played the monetary policy lever since the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that weapon's been used. I'm sure during the next recession they'll be buying equities directly and other elements, uh, but it's not going to change the economic reality much. So can we talk about um, about QE and its impact here? So you know, his, uh, the last um, you know several iterations of this, you know, we've seen the bulk of QE end up flowing into risk asset pricing, uh, which has done quite a bit to prop the market and, and really accelerate the market. Do you think that uh, happens again if they print or, or if they introduce uh, more capital into the market? Or no, I don't think it does. And I think that's the issue with the fourth quarter that led to the correction in the first quarter. You know, as we've talked about, this QE is very different in the sense that it is truly monetizing uh, deficits. So the money that's being printed while it's going into the treasuries, it's actually funding the TGA, the Treasury General Account. And with that, there's less money to recycle into other risk assets. So prior to the current QE, the Fed was printing money well in excess of what would have needed to be uh, used to fund an incremental deficit, meaning there were other ways to fund it, whether it's foreign purchasers or domestic purchasers. And so when they did that, the money just flowed into other risk assets through that balance sheet effect they, they talk about. Now that's not the case. The money they're printing is being spent into the real economy. So it has less of an impact on other risk assets. And it's also going to change the nature of the impact on velocity. So as base money starts to grow, we probably won't see quite as as significant a fall off in the velocity of money, which may put incrementally higher inflationary pressures. That doesn't mean you have high inflation. It just means what may have been deflation is less deflation or becomes disinflation. What would have been disinflation may becomes flat to modestly inflationary. Right. So, so as as we you know think forward here, um, or think back to last week and and from out from there, uh, you know a couple of questions maybe a little more cap specific, right? And so you know one of the things we saw um, over the recent downturn was the U.S. small cap market trading in line with with the S and P, right? Uh, and you know general consensus would say you know uh, small cap companies tend to have less global exposure. Uh, so is this a bit of a surprise to you? Are you surprised that small cap companies traded down as hard as they did uh, on a on some news that was relatively globally driven? Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, last week wasn't a week of price discovery. So it wasn't a nuanced uh, manager going and saying, you know, XYZ Corp should be more impacted than ABC Corp. So therefore, let's adjust the price accordingly. It was a de-risking. And so everything grossed down, um, and it really didn't matter car, uh, cap or style. 
Um, it was just a gross de-risking. The other part of this, too, is this isn't an international issue. This issue is going to show up domestically. Um, you know, we, sh we shouldn't kid ourselves that the U.S. is going to be immune from this slowdown. A, from an industrial standpoint, a lot of our activities driven by the energy industry, there are real issues with, um, you know, onshore energy production. That's not going to go away. Uh, more importantly, there's probably going to be some disruptions to daily lives on the margin. There may be less eating out, less going to movies, less driving, all of those things. So this is going to be very much a global phenomenon. So no, I'm not terribly surprised. And, you know, U.S. small caps participated in the rally in the fourth quarter. So, you know, there were holders that needed to ex exit those positions as well. Right. Uh, and so if, if look at you know, where we are today. Uh, you know, we've We've had a bit, like I said, a bit of a reset here. You know, is, is there anything that you're finding attractive in the current environment? Um, and this follow-up to that is, you know, how are you approaching this market volatility? Yeah, you know, what we actually did, A, you know, we have kind of some leads. And so we knew that from a rate of change standpoint, things were probably going to flatten out and level off. So even before the coronavirus issues, we were taking a little bit of volatility out or a little cyclicality out of the portfolios. More importantly, as soon as we saw the news around the coronavirus um, in Asia, you know, we just fully anticipated that this was going to be a much bigger issue, that this wasn't going to be able to be contained and was going to become disruptive globally. And you know, we have a, a list of uh, investments we would like to make, and we were just waiting for price. So we've tried to use this volatility to either establish new uh, positions in really good secular opportunities, or B, augment uh, existing holdings as they come in. And we're going to look to be tactical in some deeply oversold cyclicals. Like, as I said, we're treating this like a, a, a recession. We haven't had kind of a normal recession in a long time. Whether it turns into a recession or not, the price action and the opportunities in the markets are going to look like that. So, you know, we didn't come into the last week with the idea of getting defensive. We were already postured for that. So we were more offensive last week during the sell-off, modestly so, and we'll continue to monitor the credit markets and then dial up the risk accordingly. But we're, we're really looking at this kind of downdraft as an opportunity to establish positions and, and make money, uh, not to approaching it from fear or defensiveness or trying to build up defensive positions. At the end of the day, your defensive positions go down. They just go down after everything else. So it, it's not a good strategy. Yeah, no, that, and that's helpful, and and, I, and it's it's great to hear that you've had you know you've had I'll say a, a, a number of targeted names that you've been waiting for an opportunity to be able to step into. And in, in once you see that established positions, how about in terms of number of positions? Do you ultimately end up growing the overall portfolio because of this, or have you tightened down and, and you swap? We're out? we're about flat. We're swapping out. Um, so where we were already taking profits, we've accelerated that. Um, in the financial space, we're consolidating holdings there, um, and we'll probably end up with not a material change in the number of holdings. Good. All right. Very helpful. So, um, so you know, really, you know, as we as we get to the conclusion of this, you know, as we as we given what we've seen, um, you know, what, what what's the setup now? What do we set up here for the medium term? What does this look like? Yeah. Uh, you know, can you walk us through your your thesis there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, as we've talked about for a long time, you know, this cycle's been liquidity driven. And the, that liquidity 
grossly distorted capital markets and grossly distorted valuations and grossly distorted the availability of liquidity. And I think we've been in a liquidity recession since the beginning of 2018 as the Fed started its quantitative tightening. And with that, we've just been slowly repricing assets, whether it was eliminating the vol, VIX, uh, ETNs, whether it was the sell-off in emerging markets, and ultimately what we saw happen in the unicorn space, and then you know with the the sell-off in U.S. equities in the fourth quarter, um, you know we're still in that process. That's not going to change, even though the Fed is ramping up QE. As I said, they're not; they haven't done it to a level yet that would would benefit capital markets significantly. It's really just been geared towards keeping the federal government funded. I think we're going to continue to work off valuations for a number of years. I think we're going to see this heightened volatility. You know, it, it, when you just look back for the last three to five years, you know, a lot of managers think the returns have been great, and they really haven't. They're very low single digits. In the case of the Russell 2000 value at Friday's close, it's actually negative for the last three-plus years. Uh, and that's, again, just reflecting valuations whether it's market cap as a percent of GDP that's at all-time highs, we're going to have to work through these. And as we move forward, if we don't have earnings growth, you're going to have multiple compression. Because if you're not moving prices higher with earnings growth, then how are you going to get your return? It's going to be you're going to have to start relying on more dividends and things of that nature, and you're just going to have multiple compression. There's really no way around that. So that's the longer-term setup. As long as we have the volatility that we do, you'll always be able to find attractive options. It just means the indices are going to increasingly become less competitive. Okay. Well, that's that's good. And let's leave it there. I mean, that's 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 really helpful for everybody, and, and certainly appreciate your time and your insight. And you know, hopefully, we can do this again here shortly. And uh, things may have cleaned up a bit in the market. So you thank bet. You. Thanks, right, Dan. Thanks. The views, information, and/or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.